My name is Saeed Mahmoudi. I am professor of international law emeritus at Stockholm University in Sweden. Uh, one other argument uh, in support of unwilling or unable state, or let's say one other ground for justification of this standard is uh, the necessity argument. I have uh, referred to this uh, previously, but I'm going to, to expand on that a little bit. Supporters of unwilling uh, or unable standard argue that necessity is a reason for the use of force in self-defense against uh, non-state actors. The violation of the territory of the territorial state would be legitimate, according to them, due to the state's refusal to fulfill its obligation to prevent the attacks. Uh, the legality of a, of, of a use of force against an unwilling or unable state harboring terrorists is justified by its necessity and not by the determination of a previous armed attack by the targeted state, as is the case when uh, ICJ judged the matter. According to the unwilling or unable standard, um, necessity functions as a condition whose fulfillment must be assessed before any force is used. It is a legal basis, not a marginal consideration, to be considered after the legality of the use of force has been established on other grounds which is normal normal case in international law. According to the same group, that means supporters of unwilling or unable standard, there is a distinction between self-defense, which is directed solely against the non-state actor, and violation of the territorial um, integrity of the hostile state which is justified by reference to necessity and not by previous armed attack by the targeted states. According to the same group, armed attack should be considered in the relation uh, between the victim state and non-state actor, whereas the necessity criterion would concern the relation between the victim state and the host state. There is a problem with this argument. The problem is that necessity is a condition for the legality of the use of force and not a permission for such a use. As supporters of unwilling or unable seems to imply. Uh, international law um, commission rejects the possibility of invoking necessity as a secondary rule to justify self-defense according to Article 51 in the territory of another state that has not been implicated in the non-state actors' attacks. Necessity <clears throat>
can be invoked as a circumstance precluding wrongfulness for other wrongful acts, not for a wrongful use of force. Thereby, I believe uh, this argument is not well grounded, the argument of necessity. Uh, another ground for justification of unwilling or unable standard is the so-called accumulation of events. This is invoked by supporter of unwilling or un unable standard as a series of attacks that together meet the requirement of the needed level of gravity of the attack in order to use force in self-defense. Given the nature of the terrorist attacks being normally recurrent events with low intensity, doctrine of accumulation of events fits very well to justify the claim of armed attack and use of force in self-defense. Um, ICJ, in fact, has referred to this theory of accumulation of events in the oil platforms case and also in the case of armed activities. However, uh, with respect to use of force against non-state actors, uh, Judge Sima, uh, in the oil platforms case, rejected this doctrine, uh, the doctrine of accumulation events, uh, and meant that it is not applicable uh, for uh, as a ground for use of force um, in self-defense. <clears throat> one more uh, issue, one more ground, I should say, of justification in, is consent. I have referred to this term several times before. Consent of the host state to the victim state's military intervention. This is a circumstance which precludes wrongfulness according to Article 20 in ILC draft articles. Supporters of unwilling or unable standard uh, argue that lack of cooperation and consent is a factor in the assessment of the unwilling or unable standard as a basis for self-defense. As regards consent, uh, I would like to repeat and remind you of Iraq's express consent to the U.S. military operation against uh, the Islamic State in Iraq in September 2014. There was no legal problem there. However, the case of Syria is a bit different. Syria was silent about the U.S.-led operations against Islamic State in Syria until September 2015. That means over a year, almost a year. And started protesting the coalition's use of force in Syria first on 17th of September 2015. 
this was considered, or this is considered by many commentators as implied consent. They, or they say that uh, since Syria did not expressly gave its uh, consent or protested during one year, so it was presumed consent. The United States and the others in the coalition had the right to presume consent. Syria at the same time gave its consent to Russia and Iran, and this consent was since September 2015. That means at the same time that Syria protested to coalition's operation, it gave consent to Iran and Russia. However, this latter consent, that is to Iran and Russia, was challenged by several commentators and governments uh, on the, uh, or for the reason that they believed there was a lack of legitimacy. The government of Syria, according to them, had no legitimacy and representativeness in order to give consent. Consent should be given by a government which is, um, has legitimacy to represent the, the country. This was, uh, there were a few who came with this argument. So consent is a, a basis uh, that uh, is very important. In ILC's uh, commentary to Article 20 of draft articles, we read the following. Consent must be actually expressed by the state rather than merely presumed on the basis that the state would have consented if it had been asked. So ILC is uh, very clear on this matter that it should be expressed consent. They don't accept uh, presumed consent. However, ICJ in the armed activities case, paragraphs 46 and 47, uh, seems to have accepted the theory of presumed uh, presumed consent by implying that consent may be given informally by simply tolerating the existence of foreign troops in a state's territory. And this is exactly what happened in the case of the coalition in Syria the first year. Fully legal according to ICJ. Uh, at the same time, we should remember that there is a difference between armed activities case. In the armed activities case, the parties were Uganda and uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. And in that case, there was a protocol between the two countries from 1997 or 1998, according to which Congo had given right had given consent to Uganda to use force against a non-state actor inside the territory of Congo. So there was a protocol. So there is a difference between this case and the case of Syria. In the case of Syria, there was no protocol or agreement in advance. And the coalition used force in the territory of Syria under the presumption of consent. So there, there is some differences. Uh, another uh, 
ground for justification that you may find in the literature is curtailment of sovereignty. Some commentators argue that a state's failure to stop terrorist activities from its territory leads to the loss of the right to full sovereignty. The purpose of this argument is to denounce the protection that sovereignty gives to every state against foreign use of force. Sovereignty is not dependent on the actual exercise of power at all times in all areas of the territory. And no other state may presume a limitation or loss of sovereignty. A final ground of justification is extraterritorial law enforcement. It's a justification for self-defense. Um, it is in the literature that, uh, uh, of international law that this ground is mentioned. And uh, there is a definition what, uh, of what we mean by extraterritorial extraterritorial law enforcement. I quote, a short, sorry, a sort of self-defense measure enforcing international law undertaken by the victim state against non-state actors inside the territorial state if and when that state is unable or unwilling to suppress the non-state actors' armed attacks from within its territory. Describing the use of force against an armed terrorist group in the territory of another state without the consent of that state as extraterritorial law enforcement instead of self-defense does not solve the problem, does not solve the problem of violation of the territorial state's sovereignty. If I want to summarize these grounds that I mentioned, I must say that the purpose of the unwilling or unable standard is to expand the possibility of the use of force in self-defense through, first, reinterpreting the attribution criteria in the ILC draft articles 4 to 11. Two, introducing new grounds of attribution. Three, ignoring attribution requirement altogether. Acceptance in international law of the justifications offered by the supporters of unwilling or unable standard is still, in my view, is still an open question. Let me now uh, give some general reflections, personal general reflections on this concept, of, on the argument of unwilling or unable state. It seems to me that supporters of unwilling or unable standard 
desire a change in the requirements of Article 2.4 and Article 51 of the Charter. They desire acceptance of two new elements. First, terrorist groups be considered uh, as autonomous actors, subjects of international law, capable of waging armed attacks against a foreign state. Two, self-defense according to Article 51 be expanded to cover forceful responses to non-state actors' attacks irrespective of any link or lack thereof to the territorial state. In the World Summit 2005 at the General Assembly, one of the main agendas or points on the agenda of the World Summit was just definition of use of force and self-defense, if there was any change in these concepts after 9-11. The World Summit rejected any effort to limit prohibition of the use of force and expansion of the right of self-defense. And to the best of my knowledge, no other world summit afterwards uh, has uh, been there in order to, to, to address this question and make a new statement. To identify the present status of law, I think we have to answer four questions, in fact. The first question is, has international law in the wake of the 9-11 events, and particularly the recent armed conflict in Syria, evolved to allow a more expansive reading of Article 51 compared with what was accepted before these events. The second question is, is it possible to reinterpret Article 51 and if yes, to what extent in order to allow the use of force to respond to terrorist attacks? The third question is, should the UN Charter be subject to an open, dynamic, and changing interpretation on the basis of subsequent state practice? And four, should the prohibition of the use of force in Article 2.4 rather be seen as having a fixed meaning established in 1945 on the basis of the meaning of the words at that time in the light of the preparative works and the aim of the founders of the United Nations? These questions can be subsumed in one inquiry, in fact, and that is the possibility of changing the scope of a fundamental principle of international law, that is prohibition of the use of force, which according to many scholars, 
the majority of scholars, is Jus Kogans, is a peremptory norm of international law. The answers are from one extreme of denial of the relevance of UN Charter for the fight against terrorism in today's world. Some expansionists have this view. To the other extreme of refusal of any change in the relevant charter provisions that some uh, observers with restrictive approach mean. Those with expansive approach focus on the practice of few strong states and consider the silence of the majority as consent. More moderate uh, expansionists try to reinterpret Article 2.4 and Article 5, which is perfectly all right. But we shouldn't forget that due to the Jus Kogan's character of these two provisions of the United Nations Charter, there should be a general support of other states for such a reinterpretation. And that is what is lacking today. Those with expansive approach search for an attribution alternative. And the alternative can be any link or circumstances precluding wrongfulness. For them, unwilling or unable means that any type of link between a non-state actor and a territorial state, or the fact that the non-state actor is based in that state's territory would suffice for the establishment of that state's responsibility and the victim state's right of self-defense against the non-state actor. Article 25 of ILC draft articles provides the following, I quote, Necessity may not be invoked by a state as a ground for precluding wrongfulness if the international obligation in question, and now my word, they mean prohibition of use of force in this case, excludes the possibility of invoking necessity. End of quote. In other words, what they say is that since self-defense is an exception to the general prohibition of use of force, you, can ha you cannot have an extra ex exception in the form of uh, necessity. Because it is necessary, then we have to use force in self-defense. Necessity in the context of unwilling or unable is irrelevant in my view, since it is used as the reason and not the condition for the use of force. Article 
Also, I would like to refer to the to self-defense as a circumstance precluding wrongfulness, something that we see in the literature. There is a lot of references to that. It's Article 21 of the ILC draft articles. It is not controversial to uh, say that self-defense is a circumstance precluding wrongfulness. But as long as it is between the defending state and the state that has attacked. So it is in state-to-state -state relation. You can invoke self-defense as a circumstance precluding wrongfulness. But it does not deal with the wrongfulness of an act in relation to a third state. Those with expansive approach to international law claim that self-defense in the context of unwilling or unable standard does not limit or deny the sovereignty of the territorial state. I think this is correct. This is true. But uh, unwilling and unable standard, in fact, violates the territory and sovereignty of another state even if formally it does not deny it. Now you have heard uh, my views on the subject and uh, there is of course a very important question that I have to answer as well and that is, okay, what are the options for the victim state, the state which is attacked by a non-state actor, if not self-defense according to Article 51? Unwilling uh, or unable standard uh, is not yet customary international law. It's only a small group of states that refer to it and other states are silent. The concern of poor and weak states for arbitrary definitions and abuse of this concept is there. And uh, already in 1998, in fact, 1997 and 1998, when states were uh, negotiating the Statute of International Court of Justice, International Criminal Court, sorry, uh, Article 17 of the statute refers to unwilling or unable state. And already there, you could see how poor countries, weaker states, protested and resisted against this concept. It is there, but uh, it was not easy for them to accept it because of the risk of uh, abuse. So far, states themselves have defined unwilling or unable standard. Um, no court of law, particularly not ICJ, has done it. And this is also important uh, that uh, I, I must mention, that in the case of ICC, we know that this concept will one day be defined by the court, by the court of law. But in the case of, um, in the context that I'm speaking, that is use of force, uh, this is a question that should be defined by state themselves. They themselves should make the assessment which country is unable or unwilling, and then they act uh, 
accordingly. Uh, actually, one country which has uh, tried to define it so far is United States, and they did it in a, in a document in 2016. Uh, the document is Legal and Policy Frameworks Guiding the United States' Use of Military Force and Related National Security Options. Uh, in this uh, document, they have defined unwillingness uh, according to the following, uh, quote, Unwillingness might be demonstrated where, for example, a state is colluding with or harboring a terrorist organization and refuses to address the threat posed by that group. End of quote. The same document uh, also uh, define unable or inability of a state uh, in following terms. I quote, um, a state that has lost or abandoned control over the portion of territory where the armed group is operating. End of quote. So at least they have made a definition for what they mean by unwilling or unable. Uh, this definition, which I read for you, makes no distinction between an unable state and a failed state. Uh, and this is a pro problem because uh, distinct, distinction should be in mind when we use force against uh, an, uh, one state. Uh, problem of definition exists regrettably, I must say, and we need more states to define and uh, elaborate what they mean by unwilling or un inability or uh, unwillingness. Uh, I think I can draw your attention to the cases like uh, which I mentioned earlier, uh, Georgia and Chech Chechen rebels in 2001, or Lebanon and Hezbollah in the war 2006, or Ecuador and FARC 2008. Were they really unable states uh, or unwilling, uh, if we use this uh, definition that I mentioned, uh, or what we generally understand of inability and unwillingness? So, uh, I believe this concept uh, needs more uh, accurate and concrete definition, and this will be done by more uh, examples of definition that we will get in future. State which is unable, but willing. Uh, we have cases that a state really will stop um, armed activities in its territory, but is unable. Uh, and such a state normally can be considered as having done its due diligence with all the resources that they have. Uh, Ecuador, for example, repeatedly have uh, mentioned previously, mentioned that uh, the resources, they have used all the resources to stop FARC from attacking Colombia. Uh, such a state, enabled but willing, uh, does not incur responsibility, in fact. But 
in these cases, uh, normal, normally we expect that that state give consent, uh, gives consent to other states to help, to come in and help. Uh, for example, Somalia uh, did this, this thing in 2008, and Mali 2013. Uh, so there is a possibility of uh, giving consent and invite other states to come in and help if you are unable but willing. But how about states which are able but unwilling for political reason? I think this is a matter for Security Council as a threat to peace. Such a state can, uh, I mean, the issue should be addressed by Security Council if the state is unwilling on political reasons to cooperate. The territorial state's refusal to consent and the Security Council's refusal to authorize intervention can be a deplorable situation for a victim state. Uh, you cannot exclude uh, situations when a state uh, ends up in this situation. If territorial state consistently, and I underline, consistently refuses to suppress the attacks or give consent, this may be seen as an involvement of that state in the attacks and may give the victim state the right to react forcefully. But there are very strong conditions that should be fulfilled. It should not be whimsically uh, used uh, that we have now decided that um, you have refused to cooperate. The conclusion uh, may seem, this conclusion of mine may seem impractical and unrealistic, at least from the perspective of victim states. But it is still compatible with the restrictive reading of the law on use of force and the position of the ICJ on the question. And we should not forget that when a victim of a large-scale transborder terrorist attack defends itself, against ongoing attack, reactions of the international community has been acceptance as legitimate, if not legal. What I am trying to say is that if there is a large-scale terrorist attacks against another country, we have seen that international community accept the right of the victim state to defend itself, normally as an exception. And this is uh, accepted as a legitimate way of defending yourself, even, even if formally not legal, according to the um, rules of UN charters. Uh, the problem is uh, when we are talking about attacks of the past or we claim expected future attacks, uh, that there is no attack now and still a uh, state uh, chooses to use force in self-defense under the pretense of self-defense. 
In discussions about unwilling or unable standard, the focus is shifted from the nature of the attack, we should be armed attack by another state, and its attribution in Article 51, the requirement of attribution in Article 51, to the qualification of the state from whose territory the attack is emanated that the state is unable or unwilling. So there is a shift of focus, in fact. Has this shift of focus the potential of changing the scope of Juskogen's norm in international law? Why not? Maybe. Uh, it is not uh, commentators of international law which change the laws. It is the states, through their practice, which do that. Uh, the change of law is being advocated by a handful of states today. Most states have been silent about the desirability of such a change. The silence may give rise to normative uncertainty. State silence during the Syrian armed conflict, 2014 to 2016, uh, is a good example, creating uncertainty in the legal situation. It's also comparable with the silence of states after 9-11, immediately after 9-11. This silence uh, has been interpreted as implied acceptance of a formally wrongful but desirable act to deal with a major problem. Um, I would like to finish, or to, as a final point, uh, mention a few words about a meeting in the Security, uh, uh, Security Council meeting last year, in February last year. It was a so-called ARIA Formula meeting, uh, Security Council ARIA Formula meeting, uh, which took place on 24th of February last year, 2021. Uh, the title of this meeting was Upholding the Collective Security System of the Charter of the United Nations, the Use of Force in International Law, Non-State Actors, and Legitimate Self-Defense. So it directly dealt with the unwilling or unable standard. In this meeting, 34 states participated, 13 members of the Security Council, including all five permanent members. Uh, four countries, uh, in their interventions, uh, made express reference to unwilling or unable standard. They were Netherlands, Turkey, Australia, and United States. <clears throat> Some countries express, uh, they, they express their rejection of any change in law, among them Brazil, Mexico, and China. Mexico was the chair of this meeting. 
and uh, made the following statement as regards the legal status of unwilling or unable. I quote, There is, as yet, no common view on this issue and that substantive differences remain. Most participating states considered that silence from the international community should not be interpreted as acquiescence in self-defense claims. End of quote. This reflects the view uh, that most developing countries have still, I must say, have on this question. Unwilling or unable standards should reasonably be considered as a negative development of international law. It permits violation of another state's territorial integrity. It also permits more use of force in international relations. Thus, normal reaction to such development should be disapproval or reluctance. However, many reactions are quite the opposite, and I'm now thinking in the first place on international lawyers, the academic, academics, who enthusiastically try to define and establish this concept in international law more than what states themselves claim or want. However, it cannot be excluded that uh, unwilling or unable standard will one day be accepted as customary law, but uh, we are definitely not there yet. Thank you.